and welcome to this podcast on an inspector course focusing on the concept of responsibility. Creating this tragic story of Eva Smith, set in 1912 Birmingham, is J.B. Priestley's way of drawing our attention to the role that we all play in promoting humanity and compassion in society. After all, he had seen what the breakdown of compassion and humanity could do, seeing active service on the front line in France during World War I and narrowly escaping with his life. This play was written at the end of World War II, of course, in 1945, and Priestley was keen to use his play to reflect his belief that no matter who we are, we should all support one another, or else expect tragic consequences, like the two world wars. And he also believed in trying to address social inequality and was very active politically and once again this play echoes these views clearly. Although we don't need formal social concept in our responses to questions on this play, it's still very useful to make reference to Priestley and his beliefs. We need to investigate this idea of responsibility because Priestley wants us to think about who really is responsible for the death of Eva Smith. Is any one single person to blame? This is individual responsibility. Or should more than one person accept some share of the blame? This is collective responsibility. Now really, Priestley wants us to think about how society works and should we all have some degree of responsibility over the welfare of others. We'll look at the idea of social duty a little bit too, because according to Priestley, if people follow their duty to society, then all should be well. Or should it? Okay, Act 1. Priestley's play starts and in fact remains in the dining room of this fairly large suburban house. It's all very positive to start with, a family celebration and we get a little bit of insight into how the family see their social duty. Burling insists that Mrs Burling must take a little port tonight, encouraging her to share in the family's collective joy of the engagement of Sheila and Gerald Croft. It's worth noting that Sheila joins in, also insisting that she must. There are rules in polite society and this is one of them, when the Burling family is putting on a good show. Mrs B advises Sheila that when you're married you'll realise that men with important work to do have to spend nearly all their time on energy and business. It's Sheila's social duty to support her husband and ask few questions, but Sheila is already rebelling, saying, I don't believe I will. Mrs. Mr. B takes up his social duties, patriarch, giving the speech in the quiet little party, though Sir George and Lady Croft can't be with them, and we recognise that the Crofts don't see them as social equals, and perhaps this is the reason they didn't attend the celebration meal. Already, though, Eric is ruining what's expected of him as the dutiful son, because he's squiffy, he's comically calling out things like steady the buffs, but Mrs B dutifully tries to steer the social conventions and Sheila into the drawing room as the men continue their evening together. Just before this though, Mr B gives permission for everyone to ignore all this silly pessimistic talk about a labour crisis, explaining it away as nonsense and saying that his money is protected. 
He sounds reassuring but disturbingly he's almost telling his family what they can and what they can't think. It's worth noting that Eric, who remember is half shy, half assertive, is prepared to question his father and raise the issue of possible impending war, so he's possibly not prepared to be told what to think after all. But Mr B dismisses this as well as fiddlesticks and declares the grim phrase, everything to lose and nothing to win. Something that very much applies to him and his family as the play progresses. Eric tries to stand up to Burling and presses him further, but as usual, he is quashed by his overbearing, hard-headed, practical father. Burling is happy to accept collective praise as he talks about the progress we're making with aeroplane manufacture, even though he's not really involved, but he's less quick to accept responsibility later for something he has been involved with. For the third time, he refers to himself as being a hard-headed, practical businessman, but this time associates himself with a larger, elite group of similar types, as he says, we hard-headed, practical businessmen should take control of finances, giving himself a duty that he and his kind should deliver. Gerald observes that the Burlings seem like a nice, well-behaved family. They know their collective social duty is to passively keep their noses clean and ironically keep out of trouble rather than actively support those who need it. Now Mr B's sense of duty is that a man has to make his own way and look after his family and that so long as he does that he won't come to any harm. Alarmingly he tells Eric and Gerald that people who say everybody has to look after everybody else are cranks and his focus is on individualism, protection of his individual family and his individual business. It's a little bit of odds at odds with what he said earlier about we businessmen altogether. When the inspector arrives and advises him of a young woman's death, Burling hurriedly tells him, oh yes, yes, horrid business, but I don't understand why you should come here. There was a senior figure in the town, remember his previous Lord Mayor and a current magistrate, would think he would want to help. He doesn't remember the name Eva Smith. She's just one kind of hundreds of them. And even as an employer, he dismisses the notion that he has any kind of responsibility or duty to her. Interestingly, it's Eric who makes the link after Mr B remembers that Eva was one of his employees and that he discharged her instantly suggesting that his father is responsible. Burling is emphatic when he says that the wretched girl's suicide is nothing to do with him and right from the start he tries to deflect any sense of responsibility away from him, going so far as to say he simply cannot accept any responsibility. Indeed, his arrogant declaration to the inspector of if we were all responsible for everything that happened to everybody we had anything to do with it would be very awkward, wouldn't it? The inspector feels it is his social duty to ask questions and Burling thinks it is his duty to keep costs down. He feels no moral duty to the well-being of his workers. He identifies Eva Smith as a ringleader of those who wanted a wage rise. He doesn't acknowledge that she was accepting responsibility for her colleagues in being brave enough to ask for better working conditions. Ironically, Berlin tells Eric that it's about, to, about time he learned to face a few responsibilities when Eric challenges his father's handling of Eva's situation. He maintains that he is 
quite justified in his actions to sack Eva Smith when Sheila finally returns from the drawing room. Once Berlin realises that the inspector has come to speak to other people in the family, his tone shifts considerably. He then states that this makes a difference when really what he's more bothered about is that he is not being held responsible for anything now. It's odd that he doesn't challenge the possibility that others in his family might be under some kind of suspicion. Perhaps he just accepts it because it takes the pressure off him, or he simply isn't agile of mind enough to realise the implications of what Inspector Gooley is saying. Once again, Priestley leaves it to one of the younger characters, Sheila, to be alert to what this means though. She questions the inspector saying that he's talking as if we were responsible for Eva Smith's death. It's only at this point that Mr B realises the situation and tries to butt in and though Sheila quickly cuts him off realising the inspector, realising the inspector wants one of them now. When Sheila gets upset and wants the workforce to be seen as people rather than cheap labour, the inspector tells her that it would do us all a bit of good if we put ourselves in the place of these young women, counting their pennies in their dingy little back bedrooms, offering the notion of collective responsibility and how empathising would help the situation. Now Sheila's half-stifled sob when shown Eva's photograph tells the audience instantly that she knows Eva Smith and that she has some involvement in her life and death. She obviously feels responsible in some way. Bizarrely, Burling accuses the inspector of making a nasty mess of their nice little family celebration when Sheila runs out in tears. He's more bothered about blaming the inspector for upsetting a party than finding out why a woman he previously employed has died a horrible death. And of course, Priestley empowers his inspector with his cutting reminder that the promise in life that Eva had was now also a nasty mess as she lay in the mortuary. All Burling can do in return is accuse Gould of being a bit heavy-handed and reminded that they are respectable citizens. But Sheila's inconsolable about her part in proceedings and wants to know if her complaint made much dif- difference to Eva. And upon learning that it was Eva's last real steady job, readily declares, so I'm really responsible. It's here that the inspector begins to dissect the issue of responsibility by saying, no, not entirely, but you're partly to blame, just as your father is. Sheila doesn't seek to have that blame removed. Unlike her father, she gives an account of how she was in a bad mood in Millard's and saw Eva Smith smiling in the mirror. And then, looking good with the dress held up against her, she then embraces responsibility immediately, admitting that it was all my own fault and that she's trying to tell the truth. Her remorse is clear as she almost breaks down. Nonetheless, the fact that Sheila admits she wouldn't have acted in such a way had either been a plain little creature is deeply shocking to the audience and difficult to hear, despite her claim to be a reformed character and never ever do it again. Worse still, nobody even knows what name Eva Smith went by during her time at Millard's, not even the inspector. Priestley harrowingly presents an anonymous, insignificant young woman, representative of millions of young women of the time who were abandoned by society. At the end of Act 1, Gould tells us that Eva Smith then changes her name to Daisy Renton, a revelation that sends the previously posed and polished Gerald spiralling into anxiety 
helping himself to a whisky to calm down. Sheila sees this sudden change and instantly knows that he's been involved with her in some way, calling him guilty straight away and leaving him looking crushed. things develop in Act 2 and how does Priestley build up that sense of responsibility? Girls suggest that Gerald is trying to protect young women, Sheila specifically, against unpleasant and disturbing things and we know that this is more than any kind of upstanding moral duty on Gerald's part. It's probably just likely to be so Sheila doesn't find out what he's been up to. Gerald and Sheila row as he believes that she plans to enjoy his interrogation by the inspector and yet again she speaks about how she got that girl sacked from Millard's. And indeed the inspector seems pleased when he tells Gerald that Miss Burling has just been made to understand what she did to this girl. But will be left feeling she's entirely to blame if she doesn't hear about other people's involvement, even Gerald's. Sheila agrees with Girl, refusing to accept all the blame. In fact, she won't believe it's simply her fault that in the end, Daisy committed suicide. Acting as the solemn mouthpiece of Priestley, Ghoul then declares to both Sheila and Gerald that we have to share something. We have to share our guilt. Mrs B enters and staggeringly calls a search to find out why Daisy killed herself, morbid curiosity, and is not interested in the slightest. She denounces Eva as one of the girls of that class and really does not want to understand at all what happened. She doesn't see that she has any responsibility whatsoever to this girl. Gerald, on the other hand, quickly appreciates that he is involved in Daisy's death. In his sudden outburst of, I've suddenly realised she's dead, and with typical bitter supporting confirmation, Sheila asserts that probably between us, we all killed her. Now when Gerald recalls first meeting Daisy at the Palace Theatre in Brumley, it's interesting that he remembers Alderman Megatis' behaviour as being especially odious. Hemming the beautiful Daisy in at the bar with her soft brown hair and dark eyes. Now remember, he's another senior member of the town, and his social and moral duty should be to protect a young girl, not take advantage of her. We're told that she's clearly out of place there as well. And so she's struggling. But the notorious womaniser and rogue, horrible old Megaty, has a dark reputation with women. Something Mrs B is completely unaware of up to this point. As she might argue, it's not her duty to look into these uncomfortable aspects of society. Merely just to continue the normal state of affairs and enjoy the benefits of status. In Gerald's defence, he does seem to rescue Daisy, getting rid of grubby old Megaty with some excuse that there was a message for him from someone. He also found the time to talk to her and find out a little bit about her, which is more than Mr B ever managed to do. Indeed, when Gerald discovers that Daisy is desperately hard up, he makes arrangements for her to get some support with food and he also helps her financially. Croft is at pains to ensure his morals are seen to be good when he tells the inspector that he moved Daisy into a suite of rooms in Morgan Terrace, not so that he could sleep with her, but because he simply felt sorry for her. Yet later, they do become lovers, and to Daisy, Gerald becomes the most important person in her life. 
So we could argue that his motives for looking after her are not quite so pure now. In fact, our fairy prince, as Sheila bitterly calls him, must have adored the situation. When Gerald breaks off the arrangement with Daisy in the first week of September, remember, it's spring now, having to go off on a business trip, he satisfies himself that he is not responsible for anything further because, after all, Daisy didn't blame him at all, since she knew it couldn't last. And to help her with the move, Gerald gives her a parting gift of money to go with a small amount she's managed to save up on what he'd allowed her. So yes, Croft looked after her in some ways, but the control is also clear. Her salvation, or her doom, is disturbingly on his terms. Devastatingly, Girl gives us a comment from Daisy's diary that her time with Gerald left her feeling like there'd never be anything as good ever again. The impact of the breakdown is crushing for poor Daisy and it's crystal clear to the audience. It's also clear now to Croft, who has to be alone for a while and wants to go home. Whilst he helped Daisy the most, he also let her down the most, arguably suggesting that he is even more responsible for her death than some of the others. A transient, superficial episode of charity work that was ended when the fun was over and real life got in the way. Burling's clear defence of Gerald's affair, despite protesting that I'm not defending him, is stingingly insensitive, suggesting that a lot of young men do similar things before Sheila goes on to give him back the engagement ring that her fiancé had only shortly before presented to her. Burling's sense of duty now is to ensure that the Burling and Croft union goes ahead after all and takes precedence over the broken heart of his daughter. When Inspector Gould rebukes Mrs B for pretending not to recognise Daisy Renton's photograph, he asks why she wants an apology, saying, for what? Doing my duty. He is the voice of the public conscience, trying to make us, through the Burlings, see our moral responsibility. When Burling weighs in, smugly asserting that he is a public man, and therefore of significant importance, he simply responds, well, public men have responsibilities and privileges, turning his own words and lifestyle on the owner of Burling and company. Burling completely misses the entire point of it all when he states that, but you weren't asked to come here and talk to me about my responsibilities. Unsurprisingly, at this point, it's Sheila who Priestley selects to review what we have all learned so far. Father threw this girl out. I went and pushed her father out. Gerald set her up as a mistress and then dropped her when it suited him. And her abrasive language is brutal but reflects events quite accurately. And then she turns on her mother in a way we've not seen before, forfeiting the role of dutiful daughter completely as she accuses her mother of lying. Inspector Gould's attention now turns to Mrs Burling, just as we knew it would, and we wonder just what she's hiding. A prominent member of the Brumley Woman's Charity Organisation, she is meant to support deserving cases, an issue in itself really, as it poses the idea that people are somehow to be graded as worthy of help and actually, who are we to really decide that anyway? Mrs B is terribly proud, as she sees herself as responsible for the great deal of useful work she's done. Yet Ghoul reveals that Mrs B saw Daisy only two weeks ago when Daisy appealed to her organisation for support, though under the name of Mrs Burling. 
an act of gross impertinence that quickly prejudiced Mrs B against her case. In a breathtakingly callous statement, Mrs B goes on to declare that she only had herself to blame for the horrible death that she suffered based on her name and not her terrible plight. Mrs B lacks any notion of responsibility at all. Astonishingly, Mrs Burling simply didn't like Daisy because of the use of the family name and so she simply used her influence to have help refused, discounting a story of being abandoned by a man as fanciful. She claims it is a reasonable act and in doing so incredibly distances herself from the rest of the family, saying, unlike the other, bit, the other three, Mr Burling, Sheila and Gerald, she had done nothing she's ashamed of or that won't bear investigation. Of course, by now, we know that the inspector isn't going to leave it at that, and we're glad, because Mrs B is at her most supercilious and unpleasant at this point. Priestley has built up her character beautifully. He calmly and very deliberately reminds her that he thinks she did something terribly wrong, and that she was going to spend the rest of her life regretting it. To him, Mrs B is certainly responsible for Daisy's death, and then goes on to drop the devastating bombshell that the woman in the infirmary, Daisy, was expecting a baby. In response, and surging to a most pompous declaration yet, Mrs B demands that Inspector Gould go and look for the father of the child, as it's his responsibility. But the inspector is relentless and is undeterred by her arrogance, reminding her that not only did she refuse help, but she saw to it that others refused help too leaving the poor woman alone, friendless and almost penniless. The audience is appalled at the behaviour of one mother towards another. Her judgmental ways continue as she declares that, as if a girl of that sort would ever refuse money, as she continues to dismiss Daisy's story of having a partner who was silly and wild and drinking too much. And so we learn that Daisy did not want to take any more money from the mystery man because she learned that he might have stolen the money. But even this is not enough to melt Mrs Burling as she reiterates that she accepts no blame for it. Indeed, when Ghoul asks outright who is to blame, she replies, first, the girl herself. And then once again, the father of the child, who is likely to be just some drunken idler. Masterfully manipulating Mrs B, Ghoul then concludes that in the end, this man would be the chief culprit. And Mrs B agrees, judgmentally saying that he should be dealt with very severely. Brilliantly, Priestley allows the Burling patriarch to tell the inspector that he would really be doing his duty if he made sure the father confessed in public his responsibility. Knowing full well who this might be, and although we don't know yet, the fact that Eric has gone out is a key hint. We are proved right at the very end of Act 2 when Mr and Mrs Burling, both terrified and thunderstruck, undergo, undergo the terrible realisation that it is in fact their boy Eric who is mixed up in this dreadful business. <laughs> Three, the last act, what does Priestley have up his sleeve for us here? Well, 
Mrs B clearly doesn't know her son at all and the news that he is a drinker is a major surprise. Blame reigns as Eric rebukes Sheila for spilling the beans to his mother and the Burling parents can't understand Sheila saying if you had any sense of loyalty you'd act differently. Eric readily recounts his story about how he met Daisy in the palace bar just like Gerald did and he stood her a few drinks. Like Gerald, he recognises that she wasn't the usual sort of woman who was in there. Drunk and volatile, Eric sleeps with Daisy that night in her lodgings. He accepts that they meet up again a couple of weeks later and he slept with her again, calling her a good sport who was very pretty, but he wasn't in love with her. It's interesting that when Daisy tells Eric that she's pregnant, Eric reveals that she didn't want him to marry her because he didn't love her and he's irritated that she treated him like a kid, even though they were similar ages. Here though, Daisy is being responsible. She knows a marriage is probably unlikely, and if it was, it wouldn't survive long since they're from such different classes. And so, in a bid to help, Eric gives Daisy £50 taken from the Burling's office, claiming he intended to pay it back. At this point, Burling panics and wants to get rid of any evidence in his accounts and once again wants to shift responsibility and any suggestion of scandal. As tensions rise between Eric and his father, Ghoul interrupts telling them that they can divide the responsibility between them when he's gone. And after all, it's increasingly clear now that they have all had a part to play in this terrible story. In an explosive scene, once Eric discovers that Daisy went to his own mother for help and was refused, the anxiety-ridden and much-belittled son of the Burlings erupts and is nearly at breaking point when he accuses his mother screeching, you killed her. Not once, but three times, reminding her that the dead young woman was carrying her own grandchild in a poignant and devastating exchange, allocating full responsibility to her. Stepping in masterfully to calm things down, Inspector Goo serves his sentence on the entire family again, telling them that each of you helped to kill Daisy Renton, following this up with a fearful imperative to never forget it. Now Priestley uses Act 3 to revisit how each character's individual responsibility contributes to the collective responsibility of the family as a whole. Through Goo, we're reminded of Daisy's treatment at the hands of Eric as an animal, a thing, depersonalising her. Sheila needs no reminders. She's clear that she started it, and yet the inspector contradicts her, blaming Mr Burling instead, having dismissed her from the job for the crime of being bold enough to ask for a decent wage. Even Gerald Croft's involvement is highlighted once again, though the inspector accepts that his behaviour was born out of at least some affection. Ghoul's valedictory, or parting comments, before leaving the Burling property are thought-provoking and reflect Priestley's own views. He refers to the million other Eva Smiths and John Smiths out there and their chances of happiness that may well depend on us. And he asserts that we don't live alone, we are members of one body humanity. Without acting responsibly, morally and with compassion, we're in danger of suffering the dire consequences in fire, blood and anguish, such as those seen in both world wars. And with the inspector's departure, 
the reprisals start. Mr Burling is terrified of a scandal and shame abounds, though it's mainly only Sheila who is ashamed of herself. Mr and Mrs B are ashamed of their son and, as Sheila notices, the notion of remorse and guilt and learning lessons seem to be fading. And then, of course, suspicions about the identity of the inspector emerge, though, insightful as ever, it's Sheila who recognises that even if the inspector isn't real, the revelations of the night certainly are, that they are all responsible. She even manages to convince Eric as Sybil and Arthur Burling fumble around hoping to shift any blame for anything away from them. Sheila reminds everyone that Ghoul made them all confess and when Gerald returns that they are all in it, all up to their neck. And once Croft shares the news that no such Inspector Ghoul exists and Burling's phone call confirms it, Mr and Mrs Burling think they are in the clear. It's Eric and Sheila who frustratingly acknowledge that this girl's still dead and that they, Mr and Mrs Burling, don't seem to understand. It's actually just the same rotten story. Fueled by Gerald's attempts to disclaim Ghoul's methods and indeed whether the suicide ever happened at all, Burling eventually calls the hospital to be told there had been no suicide for months and is delighted. Despite the fact that he did indeed fire Eva Smith, he doesn't care. And despite the fact that Mrs B refused support for Daisy Renton, she doesn't care about her responsibility. What they do care about is being found out and being dragged into a public scandal. Grotesquely, Burley mocks the inspector's words of you all helped to kill Eva Smith, alarming Sheila and draws in the process and Mrs B admits to being amused by it all. But when the phone rings alerting Burling to the news that a girl has just died after swallowing some disinfectant and learning that a police inspector is on his way, they quickly change their tone, ending the play guiltily and dumbfounded as Priestley's spectral inspector has the last laugh, forcing all of the characters to face their own responsibility.